So the people feared the Lord, and they believed the Lord and his servant Moses. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Who is God? is a great sentence to start a sermon. Who is God? The theologian Robert Jensen said, God is whomever raised Jesus from the dead, having first raised Israel out of captivity in Egypt. Who is God? God is whomever raised Jesus from the dead, having first raised Israel out of captivity in Egypt. Jensen combines these two stories. The Exodus story and the Easter story. You can't understand the one without the other. That's who God is. And even though it sounds great the way Jensen put it, it's not original to him. From the very beginning of the church, Christians have put these two stories together. If you want to know what Easter is like, you need to know Exodus. If you want to know what Exodus is like, you need to know Easter. There's a great hymn writer, St. John of Damascus, who wrote an Easter hymn in the 8th century... It's meant to be sung on Easter Sunday. Here's the first verse. Come, ye faithful, raise the strain of triumphant gladness. God hath brought Israel into joy from sadness. Loosed from Pharaoh's bitter yoke, Jacob's sons and daughters led them with unmoistened feet through the Red Sea waters. Exodus is God's way of getting God's people out of their bondage and slavery in Egypt to the promised land, just as Jesus is our exodus from our bondage to sin and death. These stories are connected to each other. So Moses is out in the wilderness, tending to his father-in-law's flock. He encounters the burning bush. I am who I am. Moses, I've got a job for you. Go to Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go. And so Moses goes, but it does not go well. Pharaoh responds by increasing the workload for his slaves. He reduces their rations, makes life in Egypt even worse than it was before. And what happens next are the ten plagues. The Nile turns blood red. There are frogs, lice, flies, the death of livestock, boils, hail, locust, darkness. And then on Passover, God strikes down the firstborns in Egypt, the livestock and the human beings. The Lord tells the Israelites... You need to be ready to leave. Gird your loins, keep a staff in hand, your sandals on your feet. You don't even have time to wait for the bread to rise because you've got to go. But the strange thing is, they don't flee in the middle of the night. I feel like every time we tell the story, we kind of imagine them waiting in the doorways, waiting for this perfect moment under the cover of darkness where they can slip out of Egypt. But that's not what Scripture says happens. In fact, they wake up the next morning. The day after Passover, and there has been a great calamity in the land, the death of all the firstborns. Scripture says, there was a loud cry in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. The Israelites don't run. Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron and says, we need to have a word. And when Moses and Aaron come into the court of Pharaoh, Pharaoh says, get out of my land. Take your livestock, take your families. I don't care, but get away because you cannot bring this upon us again. It's not Israel that willingly leaves. It's Egypt that tells Israel to go. It's strange that it's the powers and the principalities of the time that say, 
get out of here. And so they do. There are 600,000 Israelite men. And then all their women and all the children and all the livestock, they leave the land of Egypt and they begin their journey to the promised land. They were captives in Egypt for 430 years. That would be enough, I think, for the story. I mean, that's when the credits roll. Everything's tied up in a nice little conclusion. They're set free. But that's not how the story ends. No, because for some reason, when they arrive at the edge of the Red Sea, when they set up camp, Pharaoh changes his mind. He gathers all of his advisors, and he says, what were we thinking? Letting Israel leave our service. In other words, what are we going to do without all of our slaves? How are we going to get by without all those bodies doing our work? So Pharaoh gets his army, all the chariots and and all the chariot riders, and they chase after Israel because Pharaoh changed his mind. What happens next, of course, is the story of the story of the Bible. It's the literal watershed moment of Exodus. God makes a way where there is no way. It's the story that Israel is called to recall over and over again. More psalms are written about the parting of the sea than any other subject. It is the story. Pharaoh's army catches up with the Israelites while they're camped out. God's people are terrified when they see this. They cry out to God, Lord, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us all the way out here for us to die? Moses says, don't be afraid. God is going to get us to the other side. So the Lord commands Moses to lift up his staff. The waters are divided, a wall of water on the left, a wall of water on the right. They begin to walk, as the hymn says, with unmoistened feet across the dry bottom of the sea. Israel is on their way out, but Pharaoh and his army begin to chase them in. God clogs up the wheels on their chariots. And then God says to Moses, put your hand up one more time, and I will bring the water upon the Egyptians And Moses does what he is told. And the entirety of Pharaoh's army drowns at sea. One nation is buried at sea and another is birthed at sea. Last week after we read the requirements for the Passover meal, we were learning about the blood being put on the doorposts, I asked a dangerous question. I said, how does this make you feel? How does it make you feel hearing what God asks the Israelites to do? How does this story make you feel? Not only that the Israelites make it through, but that God commands the waters to come upon the Egyptians. Scripture can make us feel lots of things. Joy, sadness, hope, and fear. All kinds of different things. The Israelites, you know how they feel? They see the bodies of the Egyptians washed ashore. It does not say that they're happy. It does not say that they're joyful. It says they're afraid. They're terrified. Because the God of their ancestors, the I am who I am, has made a way where there should not have been a way. God delivered them from their slavery. And not only that, God destroyed those who had enslaved them. It is a violent story. It's scary, really. We don't really usually tell that part when we teach it in vacation Bible school. How does it make you feel? It's scary, I think. But if you've ever known what slavery feels like, if you've ever felt imprisoned, chances are, by the way, none of us here know what that's like. But you know that it's not just enough to be set free. 
You have to know that the shackles can never come back. It's not enough to just be delivered from prison. It has to be taken down brick by brick by brick. That's the only way you can ever be truly free. And that kind of freedom, it always comes with a cost. James Cone, a great black theologian, wrote extensively about what it was like to grow up as a black child, a black Christian child, in Bearden, Arkansas, during the days of segregation. He would write about how hard it was for him to see the plight of his family and his friends in the black community because everywhere they went, they were made to feel less than whole. They felt like they were half of versions because they were put down, whether they were at the grocery store, whether they were walking down the street, whether they were trying to go to the bank, it did not matter what they did. Life was awful in Bearden, Arkansas, except on Sundays. James Cone said that he woke up every Sunday excited to go to church because Sunday was the only day that his family and friends felt like they were whole. And so they would gather at Macedonia AME Church, African Methodist Episcopal Church, and there was a woman named Sister Ola Wallace who would get up unprovoked and she would just start singing a hymn. Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come, our shelter from the stormy blast and our eternal home. And immediately the entire congregation would stand up and they would start singing with Sister Ola because they, and this is Cone's words, they felt that Jesus was there with them, guiding their feet, holding their hands, he said that the pastor would get up and say, I know the Lord is in this place. Can I get a witness? And everyone would shout, Hallelujah, Amen. The people were feeling it. Through song and prayer and sermon, they were affirming that Jesus was with them and that Jesus would get them to the other side. Cohen said every Sunday, some people would smile, some people would cry. Some would clap their hands, some would tap their feet. Somebody would get down on their knees, waving their hands and moaning the melody of a song that was too hard to sing otherwise. They worshiped so they could see how God would get them to the other side. There is something that happens to us when we sing. I mean, you're in a Methodist church for crying out loud. Half the reason we're here is because we love to sing. There's something that changes in us when we sing the songs that we sing. Something happens to us when we pray, the prayers that we pray, when the scripture is read, and sometimes, God willing, even during a sermon, God works on us. It's this thing. It's terrifying, mystifying, edifying. God grabs hold of us in worship, makes something of us, changes us even when we're lucky. Something happens in worship. You know, that's why we do all of this. It's so that Jesus can grab hold of us and do to us what needs to be done. Sometimes we're afflicted and we need to be comforted. Sometimes we're far too comfortable and we need to be afflicted. But that's what worship does to us in our heart of hearts. In short, we worship so that we have eyes to see, ears to hear, hope for things we cannot yet imagine. It's just like the Israelites on the banks of the sea or the congregation of Macedonia AME during segregation. It's through praising God, whether we're singing or praying or listening or laughing or even dancing, that God begins to change us. That we begin to want what God wants. That we start to see the world the way that God sees the world. This journey, this Exodus journey, has captivated the hearts and minds of Christians for centuries, for millennia. 
It's the story that makes all the other stories possible. Even Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, he says, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The Red Sea water is this massive baptismal body. It's also the liquid womb of life. Just as a nation is buried and another is born at sea, the same is true for you and me in baptism. That's what baptism does to us. It buries us and it raises us. And I know that it almost never feels that way. Because when you've got that sweet little precious baby over the little bowl and take a little bit of water and put it on their head three times, it doesn't feel like a death, but it is. It's cataclysmic. The whole cosmos is reoriented anytime someone is baptized. The old Pharaoh in us is left in the water. We are raised into new life with Jesus. Since the very beginning, we have seen baptism as a baptism in the waters, the Red Sea waters, where God leaves behind something and we take on something else. You know, salvation always means we're saved for something and we're saved from something. The Israelites are saved from Egypt, but they're also saved for a new way of living on the other side. In baptism, we are saved from sin and death, but we are also saved for a new kind of radical witness to the living truth that is Jesus. Years ago, there was a small southern town in South Carolina that was starting to have a fit because they received word from on high that they were going to have to integrate their schools. The height of segregation, they found out they were going to have to integrate their schools. And the whole town got together and they said, we need to have a meeting about this at the high school gymnasium. So they invited the whole town. And by whole town, I mean only the white people. They got together in this gymnasium there in South Carolina and they had a good old-fashioned fight, an argument about what this would mean. We can't let them in our schools. They're going to ruin everything. There's a way we're supposed to stay separated. On and on this fight went in the gymnasium. In the back, there was a little old Baptist preacher, half dead. He had been in that town his whole life, standing in the back of the gymnasium with a cane. At one point or another, he had married or buried or baptized just about half the town. There was truly an air of reverence on this man. And so when he motioned with his hand during the meeting that he would like to talk, it was like the parting of the seas as everyone moved so he could come to the front of the gym. Slowly making his way with his cane, he, he took the microphone to this crackly PA system. And when everyone was silent, he opened his mouth and he said, You all ought to be ashamed of yourselves. Have you not read your Bibles? Do you not know the story of Exodus? He said, We are Egypt. Hear me again. We are Egypt. He said, looking out over all of you tonight, looking at all your faces, I this night have realized that I am the worst preacher in the world. If you think anything in your faith justifies you being here tonight, that anything you've said is even remotely linked to the person of Jesus, then I have failed as a preacher. I have poured out my life for nothing. He dropped the microphone. He stumbled his way through the gym and he slammed the door behind him. They tried to get the meeting going again, but it was over. People started to slowly drift out, thinking about what he said. A few months later, the schools integrated and there wasn't a single incident. 
The gospel is a story, just like Exodus. And stories are a powerful thing. In fact, I think they're the most powerful thing. Sometimes we sing our stories, sometimes we pray our stories, sometimes we tell them, sometimes we listen to them, and they can change us. The story of the gospel is not just a story of salvation, it's also a story of transformation. So be it. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen. Would you all please pray with me? Lord, comfort our afflictions and afflict our comfort. Help us to see who we really are in your stories. That we might receive your word, the terrifying, life-giving word that it is, and be changed. Give us the kind of courage and the fortitude to leave church differently than we arrived, not just today, but every single Sunday. Help us give ourselves over to the power of worship, the power of study, the power of this community, that we might remember we worship you, the one who makes a way where there is no way. Amen.